We're back. Joining us now is Zachary Sklar, a former adjunct professor of journalism at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism, and with Oliver Stone, the co-author of the screenplay for Stone's controversial and well-known movie, JFK. Zachary Sklar, welcome to Radio Parallax. How did you get involved in this movie about uh, Jim Garrison down in New Orleans, uh, a movie that was uh, caused such controversy? I edited Garrison's book, On the Trail of the Assassins. I worked on that for two years before uh, I got involved with the, the movie. And what happened was that that book was published in 1988, on the 25th anniversary of the assassination. And uh, it was basically ignored by the mainstream press because Garrison had become you know, smeared. You know, he was pretty much at the low point, I imagine, of his, uh, of his career, yeah, his I reputation. Mean, he, what had happened was that he had written the book for a mainstream publisher. Uh, he'd been commissioned, and he turned in chapter after chapter, and the editor had said, great, keep going, keep going. And in the end, <laughs> the editor said, well, I, we can't publish this. And he was, he was convinced that there had been uh, interference from the CIA or someone uh, from up above, and so he wanted to find a publisher who he felt was free of that kind of influence. Uh-huh. So through a mutual acquaintance in, in, uh, in New Orleans, uh, a lawyer named Mary Howell. Garrison got his manuscript to Bill Shap and Ellen Ray at Sheridan Square Press in New York, and that's the publisher I had been working with, publishing books about uh, the CIA, mostly by former CIA uh, operatives who had turned against the agency. But uh, when they got the manuscript, they gave it to me, and uh, I looked at it and uh, written in a third person as a, as a historical as a work of history, and, yes. I, and I, I basically said, no, this is not going to work because you're not an objective person, and you've missed the great opportunity here, which is to tell uh, the story from your point of view as a player in the right. story. But basically, we worked for two years, and, and the book was rewritten uh, in the first person, and, 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 and as a whodunit, yes. or a why done it. So when that book was finally published, uh, Garrison it was largely ignored, but... Uh, Bill Shop and Ellen Ray met Oliver Stone in a in a in an elevator in Havana at the Havana Film Festival, and they <laughs> they handed him the book and uh-huh. said, "You should read this." Uh-huh. And he, unlike most Hollywood people, actually reads, and he he read it, and he got very excited, and he said, "Well, you know, I really want to make this film, but I don't have time now. I'm uh, to get going, and sure. I'm worried somebody else is going to beat me to it. I have to go film Born on the Fourth of July and." Who can we get to get going on this? And they, they said, well, Zach has worked on it for two years. He knows this stuff inside out. So Oliver hired me over the phone uh, without any uh, past experience as a screenwriter. I'll be darned. Basically said, look, I want you to lay out the story and, um, you know, just throw in everything. I asked him how he saw the film, and he, he said, well, the models I see are Rashomon and uh, Z. Do you know those films? Yes, I, I do know both those yeah. films. Uh-huh. And he, so I went to the library and I checked out Rashomon, the screenplay. They, there wasn't one published of Z at the time, but I watched it quite a lot. For our audience, we probably should explain what, what's the interesting aspect of that famous film. Basically, the Rashomon, when you study it, it's, 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 a, it's a story about perception. and it's, a, it's, a, it's about a crime that is seen from the points of view of three, three different people. And... Um, uh, and the storytelling technique is exactly the one that we used in JFK. We basically modeled it on, on Rashomon, which is that people start to tell their story in the present, then you go back into the past, 
you pick up live action there, you do voiceover uh, from the present, you know, or you go back into the live action and then you come back into the present, and you weave past and present back and forth, Yes. and you make a quilt, basically, of perception uh, from different points of view uh, of the same event. And uh, that's exactly what we did in JFK. So that was, that was the clue he gave me. Let's, let's use Rashomon as our model. And so I really did that. I wrote the first draft myself at, uh, and did a lot of research beyond what, what we'd already done for the Garrison book. Right. And then we picked up uh, Jim Mars's book to incorporate even further research that other researchers had done over the 25 years. Yes. And, uh, and you know, in that sense, uh, we played a little loose with the uh, literal facts of what Garrison knew at the time. We wanted to, the audience to benefit from the research that people have done over the past 25 years. So right. we included material from Mars's book of various researchers that, that Garrison could not have known at the time. Uh, and in that sense, that, that is uh, true that we, we, we are not literally telling the, you know, a, a documentary kind of uh, factual story. But the content of that stuff is true. <laughs> right. You're, the movie was criticized uh, for, for taking liberties with the facts, but the truth is, uh, in the, the case of Rashomon, when a, a speculative sort of um, look back or, 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 or Garrison, you know, conject yeah. makes a conjecture about what might have happened, yeah. it's clear when you're watching the film that you're then seeing his conjecture come to yeah. the screen. Exactly. It's, and, it, and it's labeled as such. He right. says, we might, we, you know, this is what might have happened. Or, yes, exactly. Yeah. That's a necessity because so much of the information was withheld, so that we are forced to speculate. I mean, it would be great if the government would just come out with everything, and we could find out everything, and then we wouldn't have to speculate. Right. <laughs> but certainly before the uh, Assassination uh, Records Review Board existed, which was when we were doing this film, uh, there were so many millions of pages of documents that had still been withheld, and nobody could see the Warren Commission files, nobody could see the the House Assassinations uh, Committee files. I want to ask at this yeah. point, while you're talking about that, yeah. um, this movie really stirred up the populace. I mean, there was a tremendous yeah. resurgence of interest in a lot of aspects of the government, about government cover-up, about the role of right. intelligence agencies, and really what happened right. to JFK back in 1963. At the end of the movie, you, you, you uh, portrayed in the screen the fact that documents were still sealed and would be so for decades, which really aroused people. And that's mm -hmm. what brought about this, this Assassination Records Review Board. The government actually then, because of your movie, set out to then release files to placate the public. Well, exactly. What, what happened was, I think that was the single thing that got people the most upset, was in that last speech by Garrison where, where he says, uh, you know, I'm not going to be here, but uh, my son will go into the National Archives one day and find out what really happened because all these files are sealed. People flooded Congress with letters basically saying, why should these uh, files be uh, sealed? And, and the irony was at the time, of course, that the perestroika was going on in the so Soviet Union. Yes. And you can ask Danny Schechter about this, because he's the one that did it. He uh, actually uh, uh, asked for some records uh, from Warren Commission or the House, I'm not sure which one, and basically wrote them a letter saying, you know, I'm able to get files from the KGB now under right. per perestroika. Right. It's easier for me to get files from them than it is from you. <laughs> and uh, and, and I, tell, I, I, if yeah. you ask him, he'll tell you that story. We'll have him on later, and we'll, we'll, we will ask him that. Yeah. I, I was struck the next year, 1992, after your movie, and uh, when you were cheated out of the Oscar, thanks to lobbying, right. which I should ask you about in a minute, but, but um, Boris Yeltsin actually pulled out 
of the KGB files, the accounting of what had taken place back in 1917 when the Tsar's family was basically put to death by the Bolsheviks. And I was struck by the fact that they actually kept those records around. And I thought there were sort of eerie parallels to the, to the Warren Commission classifying a lot of their files for 75 years. Yeah. Well, it's after anybody who's been alive and, and, and been passionately affected by it is dead. That's uh, basically what the, what the criterion was. Yes. Make it where nobody really has a personal, visceral interest in it, and, and therefore you can let stuff come out, and, you know, everybody will just sort of shrug and say, well, okay, it's history. Right. Uh, nobody will be asking for people to step down from their positions. Nobody will asking for a be asking for a restructuring of, 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 of uh, the CIA, that kind of thing. We're speaking with publisher, screenwriter, and professor of journalism, Zachary Sklar. What piqued my interest about your movie was the inordinate amount of uh, publicity, the cover of Newsweek, this movie can't be trusted. There was a tremendous negative campaign orchestrated, seemingly, against the movie JFK. And I thought it was interesting that after that much time, at that point, I guess, what was it, 29 years, that, uh, that there was still that much pressure that much interest in um, putting out a point of view and and it's a good question why why did it stir up so much uh, controversy so much time after after the events my own view of that is that it was like this raw festering wound in, in the American psyche that people who had been alive and had witnessed those events and everybody had watched it on television right. knew that there was something fishy Yes. I mean, from the moment that Oswald was shot in the basement of that of, uh, Dallas police station, yes. everybody looked at each other and said, what is going on here? Yes. And it wasn't that Garrison or anybody else was leading them to distrust the government. They already did. I mean, basically, uh, uh, Garrison and others, Mark Lane, others researchers who came up with uh, new information, were basically uh, confirming what people, the kind of doubts that people had already. And I think that this was the kind of uh, raw, festering wound that, that comes from, from cover-up and from not confronting what really happened. And it, it, it is a wound on the psyche, and until it's dealt with, it doesn't go away. Yeah. And I think what happened is that not only was it about the Kennedy assassination, in the interim, the 29 years, we had seen several other assassinations, Yes. Uh, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and we'd seen a Vietnam War in which the term credibility gap was coined, you know, to characterize the lying of the government, that's the way you would normally put it, lying, and you would have revelations about the CIA's role in overthrowing governments throughout the world, you'd have Chile, uh, all kinds of revelations about various assassinations and overthrow of governments. Headline news for years. Yeah. yeah. So, so, and then we had had, right before this movie came out, we'd had the Iran-Contra affair, in which clearly uh, people knew that uh, Reagan and Bush were implicated in this and that there had been another cover-up. So I think what, had happen what happened was, when this movie came out, it crystallized a lot of feelings that people had of rage about their government, that there was basically an ongoing invisible government that was doing things that were uh, just un unspeakable uh, in our name, with our tax dollars, and we had no control over it. And that is something that I think people were 
furious about, and yet they were looking for some, some way to articulate that rage. Uh, people had given up. I mean, I, I myself had given up. By the time Garrison's book came along, when I was handed the manuscript, uh, the reason I liked it and the reason I decided to work on it was that it rekindled in me yes. a sense of outrage, which yes. I had lost because I had become jaded like everybody else. Right. Just watching one travesty of an, after another come out in the news, you just, you just start, start to shrug your shoulders and say, well, that's just the way it is. We have no control over it, and it's just terrible, but what can you do? Garrison never lost his sense of rage, and that's what really appealed to me. I mean, he really you know, was such a fighter for the truth, and I think that that's what this movie crystallized. It sort yeah. of said, here's a guy who speaks for all of us. All he wants is the truth to come out, and he doesn't want any of these cover-ups, and not just about the Kennedy assassination, about invisible government. And I think that's what happened, was that it yeah. crystallized that feeling for a lot of people, and that's why the controversy, because then it becomes a controversy not just involving the Kennedy assassination, but it's involving the mainstream press and its role in uh, putting out the line, that whatever line it is that the government wants it to be at that moment, whether it be a Democratic administration or a Republican administration, doesn't really matter. Yeah. I think the basic bottom line is that governments lie. Case in point, the current controversy over weapons of mass destruction or lack uh, therein over in Iraq. Exactly. So this is an ongoing thing. And I don't think it's limited to this country either. I mean, I, it clearly it happens everywhere. But in this country, Supposedly, we have a higher standard because we claim to be uh, the most important or the most powerful democracy on earth or the most free society or whatever it is we claim to be. I think that people have the illusion that that should be true. And then uh, as, they're, as they're lied to repeatedly and the mainstream press becomes incre increasingly corporatized and we start to see as now people like Rupert Murdoch basically slanting the news any which way he wants and calling it fair and balanced. I mean, just rewriting reality. That's what gets people enraged. And um, I think that's what happened in this situation. People just got really fed up. You raised the Newsweek, uh, their, their particular cover story, The Twisted Truth of JFK. Yes. That was what it was called. Just to give you an example of how crazy it gets with, with the mainstream press, I actually talked to the researcher of Newsweek before that cover st uh, story came out. Okay. Spent many hours on the phone with her. And uh, she told me they were going to say that Garrison never set foot in the courtroom and that, the, that therefore this movie was a lie. And I said to her, well, it is true that uh, Garrison did not argue the bulk of the case because he had become such a, a controversial figure. He didn't want to draw right. so much attention to himself. Right. However... He did give the opening argument, and he did give the closing argument. And 80% of what you saw in the movie, in that last closing argument, was taken directly from his closing argument that was given in that courtroom. I did not know that. Yeah, and I said to her, you don't have to take my word for this. Go and get the transcript right. from the court. Right. You will see what I'm talking about. So that the idea that you're going to say that Garrison never set foot in the courtroom, you know, you can't do that because the, the transcript will tell you just the opposite. Yes. Well, I told her all that. She knew it well in advance of the story coming out. Story comes out. There it is in Newsweek. Garrison never set foot in the courtroom. Oh, brother. So that's the kind of thing we were dealing with in which supposedly the responsible mainstream press was talking about this irresponsible movie, which was uh, sloppy with the facts. 
it was quite the opposite. Yes. Well, Zach, I can tell you that, like you, I'd lost interest in the case I thought we're never going to know. And when I saw Newsweek cover talking about the twisted truth of JFK, I thought, well, what else is new? A Hollywood movie that's not historically accurate? I mean, duh. I mean, how? that's what you expect. So I went to see the movie and watched it and went, realizing, as you mentioned with Rosh Alman, that it was, it was um, when it speculated, it was clear it was doing so. And I came out of it thinking, this is a very good movie, a very fair portrayal. And it, my interest was completely rekindled. And as I watched, and things like lawyer David Bellin taking out ads in Variety so that, so, that, so that your film could not be the Oscar winner that year, I knew that, you know, something was really up. Yeah. And, and, and it's a much better movie than uh, Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> you really got screwed. Well, uh, <laughs> you know, I was just amazed uh, that the movie got made at all. That says a lot about... Um, our capitalist system and that I, I think it, what it said to me was, well, it doesn't really matter what you say as long yeah. as they think they can make money when well, they fell through it. Yes. But I don't think that's quite true anymore. But at the time, somehow, I think what happened was it was a freak that uh, Oliver Stone was at the peak of his popularity at the time. Yes. Kevin Costner was at the peak of his popularity. He just made Dances with Wolves. Yes. And so once Oliver managed to get Costner on board, that was something that I think Warner Brothers just could not resist. And so it was a fluke that the movie got made, and then uh, to have it be as long as it was and still have audiences come to it, uh, it was all very very much of a fluke. And then to have it be nominated for an Oscar, I was totally shocked by that and I never really expected to win. I mean, as we know from the history of Oscar, Citizen Kane didn't win. You know, some of the best movies ever made did not win. And, and, and you know, you don't always trust the, the taste of, of um, Academy retired actors. True enough, but it certainly is, and for my money, the best film of 1991. Apart from the fact that it's a fascinating, I mean, that it sucks you in in the fascinating aspects of history, just as a movie. It's just a great movie. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, I think a lot of people share your view, and a lot of people don't. <laughs> so, and that's what happened. I mean, I think often what happens with the Academy, and I'm a member of the Academy, so I say this uh, as self-criticism, that the Academy often opts for the less controversial film yeah. uh, of the year yeah. um, because it's, it's a common denominator kind of thing. And uh, it sometimes nominates very good films, but, but often the best films are overlooked for the actual award. I mean, another case in point, I think, if you look back and see the year that Reds was nominated, uh -huh. I think what not what ended up winning the Oscar was Chariots of Fire or something like that. Yeah. But uh, if you look at the two films together, there's no question which is the more ambitious film, which is the more interesting film, which is the more controversial film, <laughs> and which will last in, in history, you know. You're shaming me. I've never seen Reds. I've got to go out and rent it now. Oh, it's a fascinating <laughs> film. It's a terrific film. It was very controversial at the sure. time. And, uh, and, and it lost out to a film that was, you know, a good film, but certainly nothing that was anything uh, that anybody's going to remember years from now. Our guest is the co-author of the screenplay for the movie JFK, Zachary Sklar. What motivated Costner to go with a honeyed southern drawl when Garrison spoke like a Chicagoan? <laughs> well, he didn't really talk like a Chicagoan. He was born in Illinois, but uh -huh. he really was raised uh, in, in, in New Orleans. He didn't have a, a, a strong southern drawl, that is true. But, uh, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know how that decision was made, but, but he, he, um, we, we had an accent coach on the, on the set. Oh, yeah. And 
and there were times when Costner, I mean, Costner was not like Garrison in, uh-huh. any, in any way. Uh, it, it, Costner was the person who, who got, helped get the movie made, and he did a competent and good job as, in, acting in it. And I think what he provided was a sort of a calm center uh, through, through a, 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 a wild group of characters. Yeah. And Garrison himself was as wild as any of those characters, yeah. personally. Oh, yeah. His yeah. own, and he was six foot seven inches tall, and he had this great rolling baritone voice. Yes. He had a sardonic wit. Yes. He was very brilliant and very well read, and he, these sentences would roll off his tongue that were just beautifully constructed with very vivid language. And uh, a lot of that, uh, or some of it anyway, we had to cut back in the script because uh, Costner was not that. I mean, he could not project that. The one thing that he projected that was real and was true to Garrison was his absolute sincerity in searching for the truth and yes. his doggedness. And I think that Costner captured that. Yeah. Um, but as far as the other aspects of his of his personality, which were bigger than life, yeah. uh, Costner could not capture those because you know it's just it's there are very few people who could capture that. Right. Well, two two final questions. Uh, when 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 you came on board with the with the book, Garrison was I think uh, was considered by everyone it seems to have been a discredited figure. And then I think in the late seventies, uh, someone had sort of in the wake of Watergate had said, you know what, you ought to take a look back at what Jim Garrison was trying to do back in the sixties. It doesn't look so preposterous now. And in the wake of the movie and a lot of interest in the film, uh, it seems his reputation was largely rehabilitated. Did you, did you get a sense from him that he some satisfaction out of that? Jim was very happy that the film was made. I think it did, it did give him some sense of vindication. Uh, but more important, I think he felt that the truth that he wanted to come out was, was seeing, being seen in a, in a widespread way and that there was hope that more truth would come out. Uh, he really was dedicated to, the, to, that, to that cause, and um, he put his whole life into it. Yeah. I think even people who are assassination researchers did not really, and didn't know him personally, yeah. uh, ended up buying into a lot of the smears that were printed in the press. And only later did we find out from the revelation of the Freedom of Information Act uh, document uh, that there, the CIA had actually orchestrated a smear campaign uh, directed at critics of the Warren Commission. You print in the book, the book of the film, which I recommend that anyone grab interested in this case, uh, the book of the film with your screenplay and a lot of other things, where that's actually printed up, that document of how to deal yes. with, uh, with Garrison. Yes, and, and it basically said we use our propaganda assets, meaning writers and editors in the yeah. press, to print stories uh, about these critics, meaning Garrison and Mark Lane, who were the two most right. prominent at the time, um, to say that they are... Uh, they do sloppy research, that they're egomaniacs, that they have uh, political aspirations, uh, that they're corrupt and uh, can be bribed, and things like this. Uh, these are exactly the kinds of stories that were printed about Garrison many, many times. And there were, and we now know from uh, a lot of the files that have come out, that people like Hugh Ainsworth of Newsweek was working for the CIA, James Phelan, another uh, writer for the Saturday Evening Post, was reporting to the FBI, um, you know, these people were actually uh, masquerading as objective mainstream journalists, and in truth what they were doing was they were on the side of Clay Shaw, and they were actually working as operatives to, to maintain the interests of the FBI and the CIA and make sure that they weren't embarrassed in this affair. Yeah. So uh, I think that 
the the reason that Garrison was seen by so many people as this gothic uh, Southern character who was, uh, you know, a liar or corrupt or all these you know, sort of stereotypes of him uh, was because there were so many yeah. of these false stories that were printed, you know, including one by Jack Anderson in his col- column about uh, Garrison, uh, you know, picking up some boy in the New Orleans uh, Athletic Club. I mean, you know, again, un- totally unsubstantiated. Uh, and, of course, Garrison was brought uh, up on charges of taking bribes, and he, you know, was exonerated from that. But, you know, you don't read those kinds of things later in the press. All you read is, well, sure. he's brought up on charges. So that his reputation, I think, was, was, was largely the result of an orchestrated campaign that succeeded. Yes. And I think that the movie, in large part, did uh, wipe out all that hard work that they had done on him. And I think that infuriated them. (laughs) Yeah, it did. And I think that we get a lot of uh, uh, work now to try to destroy Garrison again and to discredit the movie. Uh, We don't have a memo uh, that's come out yet uh, showing how this orchestration has been done, but it would not surprise me if that was being done and and that there are certain books that are being published uh, which, you know, basically serve the same function as, as the Ainsworths and the Felans did in the past. Absolutely. Uh, on that very topic, can I ask you about someone who's uh, currently, I think, uh, f- uh, putting forth one of these propagandistic uh, looks back on television, Gus Russo. I heard Gus Russo claim that uh, he's responsible for that uh, that little blurb at the end of your, your film about the, the records being sealed, but that isn't true, is it? Well, uh, I don't know how he could be. I've never talked to the man in my life. I wrote it. <laughs> Uh, Oliver, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if uh, Oliver uh, talked to him, but, um, you know, I wrote it, and I, I, I certainly have never talked to the man in my life, so I don't see how he could possibly re- be responsible for it. Well, good. It. Then we can establish right here for the listener <laughs> that Gus Russo is a liar and that uh, that most of what he has to say is pretty much a pack of uh, BS. Well, I don't know about everything he has to say, but that certainly is. He's got one of my considered to be the, the great cockamamie theories of the JFK assassination is that Fidel Castro is responsible. I think if anyone, if I want to pick any the least likely candidate on earth, it would be the guy whose nation is ninety miles away, uh, with you know the, with the, the behemoth just ready to go in and take him out. He's not the guy that would have shot Kennedy. Well, I, I think the, the the thing that puts that to the the lie to that is a simple fact that. Uh, uh, at the time of the assassination, uh, Castro and Kennedy had opened a back channel of communication through a through a, uh, a diplomat named William Atwood to try to reestablish uh, diplomatic relations and try to uh, you know heal the wounds between these two countries. And uh, it was totally in Castro's interest to ke- keep Kennedy in office. It was the last thing on earth he would have wanted to do was get rid of Kennedy when he had an opening finally to try to reestablish and normalize relations. Yeah. So that theory of Russo's just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, n- nor, nor to me either. And my last question is, how did you guys get such great, unbelievable casting for that, for that movie? I mean, and, and the, what amazes me is the people, the, the fine actors that just had these small, uh, small roles and really rounded out the picture with, uh, with Ed Asner playing uh, Guy Bannister and Jack Lemmon, his assistant, uh, uh, Jack Martin, people like John Candy playing a lawyer, Dean Andrews. I mean, it really is fabulous. Well, I agree with you. And, uh, of course, the big one was Costner, uh, and that... We have his wife to thank because Costner was going to take the year off after Dances with Wolves, and he was tired. And his wife read Garrison's book, and she said, you know what, you really have to do this. 
and I'll it was be darned. because she she read it, uh, and then he read it, and he decided he would do it. The others, uh, Asner, Jack Lemon, Walter Matthau, a lot of these people, uh, Donald Sutherland, they came forward and and basically asked to be in the movie. They did not. They worked for scale, and they did not want uh, you know money for it. They wanted to be part of something that they they believed in also. Yeah. And um, and I think that's. Uh, how we got a lot of them. I mean, not all of them, but some of them, uh, like Asner, Jack Lemmon, and, and Matthau, Sutherland. Yeah. And then there are others, you know, Gary uh, Oldman. Gary Oldman's fabulous as Lee Harvey Oswald. Became a star, basically, yeah. as a result of that. He got his first Oscar nomination. Correct me, uh, uh, Gary Oldman was nominated and Tommy Lee Jones as well. No, Gary Oldman was not nominated. Tommy oh. Lee Jones was nominated. Okay. That was Tommy Lee Jones first. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of very small parts that were beautifully played and I think that's what makes the film it helps the film's believability is that you have such high quality uh, acting and 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 also the production the design the way you know the attention to detail Oliver is a stickler for detail and as much as he's been slandered and I think that's part of the whole thing uh, that they do to the point now where you can't read his name without seeing conspiracy nods exactly. or so forth yeah. next, next to his name or paranoid uh, I think that's an orchestration, but uh, the truth about him is that he's far from being any of those things. He is an, he's a, a voracious reader of history. He pays uh, uh, attention to detail. He's a real stickler, and uh, we had a you know a researcher, a full-time researcher who went over everything. Uh, we published a book which basically source notes everything that's in the film. Yeah. And it lets people decide for themselves based on, you know, where we got it from, whether this is true or not. What other films have you seen that do, that do that? I, I, I haven't. For, for that matter, when you read the New York Times, do you ever see a source note? No. <laughs> no, I, I can't recommend the book of the film highly enough. And if someone, and a lot of people haven't, they should certainly go out and rant, or better yet, buy perhaps one of the new DVDs of the movie. And I, and I, and I think they should spend the extra money to get the director's cut. It is being released now again uh, on the 40th anniversary uh, with the director's cut on DVD, I believe. I think it should be on everyone's uh, library of, of, uh, of movies to have in the home. Thank you. Zachary Sklar, thank you so much for talking to us. Okay, Doug. We'd like to thank Zachary Sklar for coming to talk to us on this program about uh, the controversial Oliver Stone film, JFK, one which we've recommended you to go out and see if you've never done so. And I certainly would recommend the book of the film. Um, it so happens that on next week's program, we'll be joined by Jane Rusconi. Jane was the researcher on that film, which helped make it, I think, uh, uh, as fine of work as it is. We're looking forward very much to talking to Jane and about uh, how she was able to document, in the case of the dialogue, the, the screenplay that Oliver Stone and Zach Sklar wrote, how the dialogue is actually true to what people had to say about what actually happened. You're listening to Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento.